Hey everybody, welcome to Snakebite Podcast number 21. Uh, we are brought to you as usual with the help from the guys over at digbmx.com. Dig has been pushing proper BMX coverage since the early 90s, so go check them out on all your favorite platforms. Um, today's podcast, I sit down with Dom Phipps. You, re- you may remember Dom from about a year ago. Uh, we talked with him about the wall-to-wall freestyle book that he put together. Well, he's at it again, and I caught up with him to discuss what he's got going on now. I'm a really big fan of printed media and collecting BMX history, so when I hear you know books, I get excited. So sit back, somewhere comfortable, and enjoy the show. I'm sitting here with Dom Phipps. Um, Dom and I talked, I don't know, what was it, about a year ago, a year and a half maybe, ago? Yeah, maybe like 18 months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about, well, you, you give them a little... Yeah, sure. The, little, um, the book you did. Well, firstly, it's great to be back. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, My glamorous diff- house. Different venue this time yeah. than the bank, the bank parking lot, which is great. Um, but, um, yeah, so... so uh, we talked about the the project, the birth of the freestyle movement, which was a book I was uh, working on, um, a book that's going to, or did, kind of record uh, some of the uh, kind of essential parts of the BMX freestyle scene in the 1980s. So we kind of got through uh, that project, and it was a busy one, um, several other different elements to it um, that helped us to, well, enabled us to put the book together. Yeah, books are very difficult to do um, in that they're very laborious uh, projects. There's a, a lot of work involved, particularly when you're, you know, just a small team of people doing it. In this case, it was myself and uh, Xavier. So Xavier Mendez, um, he was taking care of a lot of the operational stuff. I was pretty pretty much drilled into the creative side on the book, um, doing the interviewing, traveling, bringing the community of people together. Um, so it was very busy and, you know, we did our very best. We, we, uh, you know, had a couple of hiccups, but essentially we launched the book last summer at the yeah. US Open in the US. Yeah. And, it, you know, I think people that listen to this podcast and know me know that, you know, I'm kind of a big history buff when it comes to, oh, yeah. you know, BMX and BMX freestyle. I mean, that's kind of why I started the podcast and, you know, so when I heard you wanted to do a second edition and kind of basically cram more stuff into the book. I was really excited about it, and I thought it'd be fun to just have you back on and and talk about what's going into that, because, you know, the more people know about where BMX came from, I think the more positive it can move forward, you know. So, yeah, what, so what's going on with the... You got a second edition you're working on. Yeah, so basically, um, I want to say like three months ago, I, I was selling books occasionally, you know, on the website... And I had a couple of boxes in my garage, garage, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I kind of, one, one day I went out there and I pulled a book out to put it into packaging and I was looking, thinking, you know, what, what is my ambition, ambition now for the project? Because essentially, you know, you, it concludes when you've got no books to, to sell. And you were cut, you were running a little low. Yeah, it's kind of getting to the end of it. And we, and we had some books going to distribution as well. So, you know, we printed a certain amount. Some were sold directly, some were sold at book launches. 
a lot were pre-sold. Yeah, which was great, and that again, yes, yeah, it's a sort of testament really to the to the passion of the BMX community out there that they they recognised that uh, we needed that help to kind of pre-fund it. Um, so anyway, I just started thinking about what what should I do with it? You know, should I just reprint it, put it back out? Um, so I ended up putting a copy of it next to my bed and with a bunch of post-it notes and really just kind of went through it in the evening uh, occasionally and just made notes on it thinking, you know, if I was going to, when we send it back to print, what needs to be done? Yeah. Um, and it went really from a point of me thinking, you know, I'll just kind of tidy it up and maybe change out some imagery, uh, retouch some imagery uh, to being something much more comprehensive, I guess. Um, and me recognizing after speaking to some different people, uh, that there really were some sort of more essential elements that could go into it um, to make it a more, you know, more kind of finished piece. Yeah. Um, so I then started a plan, you know, the last couple of months of, of thinking, what would I put in it? Um, who would contribute? Um, you know, what what is the end result of the of the reprint? And yes. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at. So we've got a lot of new content. Yeah. What's some of the What's some of the content you felt like you were like, you know, when you were looking at the book and you're sitting there, what, I mean, you know, you, you could go on and on, but what were some of the key contents or the yeah. key pieces or the cogs to the puzzle that you thought you were missing? Well, the first thing really is that, you know, you know, you can't put everything in yeah. and you know, you shouldn't because, you know, no disrespect to anybody out there, but, um, the book has to be a finished piece at some point. Um, and also I guess I have to make the decisions after research what what is essential to it. There were two things that I had in my mind, and, and the first one was um, I, I did have an idea that in the first book we'd put a chapter about the curb dogs uh, yeah. in, so the NorCal crew, uh, legendary, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you're not familiar with the curb dogs, there's like Drob, Dave Anderspeck. Um, there, there was a core, a core group. Uh, they kind of came out of Golden Gate. And... Yeah, that's right. There was a scene there that, that the Curb Dogs kind of emerged out of. Um, and they had some, you know, some pretty uh, sort of solid characters and leaders, people like Dave Van Der Speck, who um, kind of galvanized a bit of the scene. Yeah, I mean, Dave was definitely a pivotal dude. Um, I mean, that, that scene was coming up at the same time, like, wouldn't you say, like, Buff and RL and all those dudes were kind of coming up. Yeah, definitely. In the early 80s, I mean, but Again, it just wasn't seen as much. It, well, it wasn't, and, and that's another reason that I wanted to revisit, because, yeah. you know, there are there are certain people out there that would that would say, you know, the media center for BMX Freestyle was down in L.A., and, of course, fair enough, and, and the media in BMX Freestyle did an incredible job of promoting, you know, the scene, the sport, and uh, getting more kids into it, um, and, and, and developing it into this really cool kind of culture. Yeah. Um, so when I spoke to, to Maurice, who's, you know, Maurice is such a typically modest and helpful guy. Yeah. I said to him, listen, you know, I'm going to do another edition and I'm thinking about maybe putting the Curb Dogs chapter in. Would you help me with it? Um, and in a, in a very, you know, modest, kind way, as usual, he said to me, Dom, to be honest with you, I would suggest you look at the bigger picture of the Northern Californian scene because as much as I'd love to be, you know, we'd love to be the beacon for that scene there was a much bigger scene here with more elements to it um and i think there's a norcal story not just a curb dog story yeah so i mean uh, yeah nor i mean norcal's i mean it's always had a rich history but even at that time i mean wilkerson you know we yeah. already went over 
Maurice and Vanderspeck. I mean, towards the tail end, Mike Kernike, Hugo Gonzalez. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of dudes. Rick Allison. Yeah, there was there was a really strong group of talent up there, um, and you know there were there were different pieces to the jigsaw too. So there was the Curb Dogs, and you know a lot of people don't know that you know there were uh, half pipe contests up there. Yeah, back in the early and Joe 80s, Lopes ramp. And Joe Lopes ramp. Yeah, there was a couple of contests where skaters and BMXs were race, were riding against each other, or well, not against each other, but in the same arena. Yeah. Um, and there was so there was a lot of innovation, and you know as usual, skateboarding is kind of looming in the background of of freestyle as an influence to it, and that's something that I think I've found is prevalent right through the decade. Um, so there were a ton of things happening. There was a great street riding scene. Um, there was a, a really strong community of riders that would that would uh, you know form up and ride together at the Golden Gate Park, for instance. Yeah. And again, I know a little bit about that, but when I when I sort of dipped into it a little bit further, uh, talking to guys like Robert Peterson and Maurice, um, and we've got, I want to say, another 15 guys that are going to contribute out yeah. of that scene. Um, it really you know, gave me a, a sense of how important that was. Um, and community is a good word for it because they were very welcoming of new riders. So you know, it was very much a jam format. Uh, it was an early kind of place that riders got together and just and just rode. Yeah, um, and you see the photos, and it does look like early jam format, like you know, back in the day, like big jam circle, you know, and it looks like there's like you, know, you see some of those photos, and it looks like they're from like I mean, I'm just guessing like '84, '83, and it looks like there's a hundred riders at that time up up there. Yeah, totally. It, it was like the lightning rod for yeah. anybody in that scene, and and word traveled quickly because those guys were so passionate about what they were doing. Um, and, you know, it is. It's a bunch of kids wearing jeans and T-shirts and, and riding goofy bikes with two different color wheels on them. And there's roller, uh, roller skaters, you know, uh, rolling alongside bike riders filming them. Um, yeah. So it's a really, yeah, really interesting and very cultural scene that's early on in, in the story. It's I kind of, I mean, it's kind of reflective of San Francisco and Northern California as itself, you know? You've nailed it because that, that really is, you know, the way I feel about it and with my limited knowledge of different cultures in this country having you know moved here as an Englishman yeah I certainly recognize that there's a different kind of flavor to their scene than there is from the Southern Californian guys and the LA guys yeah um, and you know again I go back to it I think it's an essential part of the story uh, we're going to allow a fairly chunky sized chapter I think up to about 40 pages to cover that scene yeah We've got incredible uh, imagery as always you know I always uh, I'm a big uh, proponent for getting good quality and uh, imagery stuff that hasn't been seen yeah. stuff that's you know demonstrating something illustrating something cool um, so we've got a lot of that and a lot of willing guys who are who are you know moving the needle up there who are going to contribute to so I'm excited about that chapter awesome what are there any, I mean there's there's even more chapters than just the NorCal Curb Dogs one what are, what are yeah. some of the other ones you, well the, the other kind of main one that towards the end of the last project we were you know I sort of put that book together uh, chronologically, meaning, you know, I started at the start and finished at the end. Yeah. The last chapter, you know, the last kind of main history chapter was uh, no permit required, which was all about street BMX. Yeah. You know, the, the, and the rise of it in the late 80s and stuff. Exactly. And, and one of the things I really wanted to illustrate in that chapter that I'm not sure I successfully did in the end was, um, was to show really that, that this kind of street riding culture was prevalent right through. You know, people tend to sort of put a date on it and say, oh, this... The street era was, you know, 88, 
when Ron started to put on contests. But one thing that's consistent all the way through, all the people I spoke to, you know, from John Swanigan and Bob Harrow and Mike Buff and R.L. Osborne, was that these guys, you know, riding their bike in the street... <laughs> Riding their bike. <laughs> that was Brian Skura. Oh, um, riding their bikes on the street was was you know the constant thing. Yeah. Um, so the what I started to do at the end of the chapter was I started talking to people like Vic Murphy and Pete Augustine, um, and the more I spoke to those guys, the more the more I became aware of. Um, excuse me, Brian. Can I, Brian? Can I call you back? <laughs> I've just started doing a podcast. Okay, we'll do. Thanks. Okay, bye. Here you are, silence it. Yeah, better do. <laughs> <laughs> if you um, didn't know, that was, that was Brian Skura calling him. Probably talk about the project, so. Yeah, that's it. Um, let's just turn that down. Anyway, sorry. So, yeah, I started talking to those guys at length. And, you know, they I, I became uh, pretty educated, I guess, about, you know, their scene, their beliefs, their motivation. Yeah, that, that San Diego right. scene. And again, it's another it's another little epicenter in the story that that is quite unknown. Um, and they had their own culture, you know, yeah. different to the NorCal guys, different to the LA guys, uh, different to what was emerging in the back end, the other side. And of the country. kind of the, the leaders of like you know the Dirt Bros. I think that whole crew and that San Diego crew, you know, it, it was pretty broad. But I mean, it was Brad Blanchard, Vic Murphy, Ronnie Farmer, That's it. Carlo Peter Guess, yeah, Carlo Wick. Jimmy Arrington was part of the mix. Yep. Eddie Some Roman was kind of around it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eddie was like a, you know, a, a kind of, I don't know the best way to describe it, but Eddie was in the mix. And, and, and Volker, was dipped his, Volker would dip his toe in the pool. <laughs> exactly. Volker was never far away either. Um, and, you know, those guys had a lifestyle and they had a belief system and they left a legacy. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when we think about... I mean, they're like, I mean, both of those, both of those scenes, they're... What they did is still felt today, you know. They, they're almost they're almost the connection, you know, between between what's happening now and what was happening then. Yeah. And you know, without making it sound, you know, too critical like that, um, there's certainly elements of of what they did and the way they thought about things and the way they wanted to ride. They they were a little bit counterculture. They weren't particularly motivated by you know getting paid or anything. They were just actually we're just going to exercise our our liberty to ride and and do the stuff we want to do and innovate um, yeah. so they didn't really have any kind of grand master plan but they were a solid crew they were like-minded they you know were almost kind of telepathic from what i can tell uh, and they yeah they put together something that again is an essential piece that needs to be in the, in the project yeah i mean yeah there, there's some imagery and some story i know I've, i know some of the stories and there's some stories yeah, that well, are I, yeah I mean, I get that. excited about this stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of this story. I see myself as the lightning rod to put the story out. But in the same way, anyone picks a book up and doesn't doesn't know these stories. That's that's, you know, I get that excitement too when I go interview yeah. people. Um, so that you know that is one I'm particularly motivated to yeah. uh, to get down. So. Um, are we missing any chapters? I mean, the other thing I'm definitely looking to do is is to dig in a little bit to the to the dirt scene as that emerged. Yeah. Because you know, BMX Action Magazine was a bit of a, a proponent of uh, what was happening in the racing scene, obviously, with freestyling and Go being dedicated very much to freestyle. BMX Action maintained its its course with BMX Racing. Yeah. And one of the things that was um, that was happening at, at races was something that was very 
similar to what's happening at the beginning of the decade, which was there'd be half-time intervals at BMX races while they you know tallied up the moto sheets and get organised for the next round of motos. Um, and just like they did in the early days when Haro and RL and, and Bath and those guys would put on shows, there was a dirt jumping scene coming out of that yeah. place too. So uh, there was a there was a community of guys that were, I guess, coming out of racing and exercising a new direction, which was all about dirt jumping, which of course is now a huge, you know, a huge kind of piece of the of the whole BMX story. Yeah. So I'm looking to get into that too, and I and I have some conversations going on with. Um, a few of those guys, and also with uh, a, f- a couple of people in the media that were helping to sort of orchestrate that and, and give it presence through magazines. Yeah. So I, I'll update a little bit more on that further down the line, but um, I'm excited about that too. I think that's a really cool, you know, uh, leaf on the vine. Yeah, definitely. Story. Yeah. And you, are you going to be talking to any, like, new writers, you know, that are just kind of like, you can't, you know, kind of last time you just, just missed the mark with them? Any, any... Yeah, I mean, there's... You know, one of the things I was aware of, listening back to some of the audio from the from the interviews, and it kind of has to be like this, is you talk to people about very specific things. Yeah. So, you know... Like, if you go into the project, you're like, hey, here's RL, I want to talk to you about the BMX Action Trick team, you, you know, certain yeah. staple things. In, in the most boring form ever, there's a spreadsheet that exists yeah. with chapters and contributors called out. Yeah, um, and it has to be like that again because otherwise, you know, you you got no kind of direction. Um, but it was quite aware. I became quite aware, shall I say, that uh, when I started listening back to some of the audio a month month or two ago, that there were certain riders that, you know, had I had turned the tables and said to them, "What should we What should we be talking about in terms of your story?" That probably they would have talked about something different. Yeah. So that's not to say that talking to RL about the BMX action trick team isn't highly relevant of course it is yeah and that's not to say talking to eddie roman about the afa isn't highly relevant because it is but certainly there's some uh expansion you know on those on those stories rl was a you know one of the longest campaigners in in that era he came in right at the front end and he went it went out right at the back end of it um if we call it you know an era i guess yeah so um i'm looking to try and uh I've reviewed some of the chapters to see where we can bring, you know, different voices in. Um, and what we're going to end up with, actually, is a book that has an enormous amount of updates to it. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I defend the fact that the book is the book, the first edition. I think it's a good piece of work. Um, but giving myself an opportunity to go back to it now and say, OK, what, what do we do to improve it? I can just push it out into the world again and print it. Um, or I can be, you know, re-engage my, my fanboy... <laughs> Uh, personality, and we can we can actually make it better and better. Because yeah. one thing is certain that there was a ten year era that probably has twenty years of content in it. So well, and it's just fa- crazy how fast stuff moved. When we were watching, we were watching some footage last night, and we saw a Haro show in '88 yeah. with Wilkerson, Blyther, and Nori. And at the end of the show, Wilkerson does a nothing air, like pretty much like it's nothing. I mean, like. <laughs> Yeah, like it's nothing. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, you know, it was just it was a pretty intense show. And then we looked at a show. You know, we just clicked on the next thing. Looked at a show it was four years earlier. Yeah, and it was uh, who was it? Wilkerson and uh, Ron, Ron and Richavella. Yeah, and Richavella, and they're riding a six foot tall, six foot wide quarter, doing like two foot tables out of it, and it's almost comedic. Yeah, you know, the ramps shaking. Uh, I think they had it pushed up against a car or something. 
And it's just yeah. that that four years, and, and they're just wearing full jerseys, goggles, and in that four years time, it literally seems like there's like, it it feels like it's like two decades between them, like like how in, in how fast it moved. Absolutely, and I think that you know again that's that's something to try and illustrate uh, in the book is this kind of really um, steep curve of evolution. That yeah. wasn't, you know, and it, you can talk about it as a whole evolving, but the writers were evolving the writing, the media were evolving the culture, um, the photographers were, were you know, playing their part in capturing the action and being able to put it out into global distribution. Um, so there's all these different elements, but yeah, I, I was, you, you called it out when we watched it last night, you know, over a four-year period, these are almost two completely different uh, scenarios. I mean, it's like compare the 80s to the 50s when you looked at yeah. it. it. It was insane. Absolutely. And, you know, the front, the one the one from 84 with Ron and Rich, you know, looking completely uh, drilled in GT uniforms and, you know, having, very much having a, uh, that, that kind of of the time person, uh, identity. Yeah. And then, as you say, four years later, these guys have kind of grown up. They've become more independent. Um, and they look like you know, teenagers or, or kids are 16, 17 years old that are exercising that, you know, yeah. their independence, I guess. Um, and the level of tricks is just staggering. I mean, and actually folks, Shad has convinced me to uh, allow us to publish that, that nothing air on the Snakebite website. <laughs> so you'll be able to see that later. Yeah, we'll post, we'll, we'll post that video up, so. Um, yeah. Uh, another... Well, well, let's use this as a precursor to, to roll in, because we were going to talk about Action Now, the magazine, a little. Yeah. But we were talking uh, a little about Jeff Watson last night, and you told me kind of a funny story that I got excited about, and I don't know... If... Yeah, I mean, as, you know, my, my kind of, my geekness is is quite centered on that really early skate park era. Yeah. Um so I, I tend to selfishly put a lot a lot of time and effort into researching that. Yeah, that like seventy eight to eighty two. Yeah, so there, there's you know certainly the turn of the seventies and eighties. I mean, I'd say eighty eighty one. Um, there were these these guys out there that even the guys that we talk to speak about. So yeah, the, you know, like the were the Eddie Fiolos and the Dominguezes. Yeah, they had there was a crew. You know, there were dudes before them. There, there were these people that you know, in, in some ways were inspiring them. Yeah. And, and they were almost kind of like myth, mythical names. I mean, one of the things I did when I speak to Eddie and, and Mike and, and some of the guys, even Fred Becker from that early era <coughs> um, around Whittier and, yeah. and the kind of beach city skate parks, um, you know, they talk about Jeff Watson. Mm-hmm. And everyone, everyone has a consistent kind of, you know, message about him, which was that he was this kid they'd heard of and he was doing these radical things. Um, and, you know... It was kind of a, in, uh, what's the right word? It was a, an inspiration to those guys. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the beginning of airing out of pools and landing to flat. You know, we've seen pictures of Woody Itson doing that at the, at the Big O. Um, certainly Mike and Mike Dominguez and Martin Aparillo and people like that have spoken about that too and said, you know, that was the first thing that people were doing. Uh, whether Jeff was the first guy to be airing back in again, I don't know. But I know that there was this scene at the Colton Skate Park and the Cotton Skate Park was well-known, really, because it was a bit of a stronghold for the Veriflex skateboard team that were very, you know, proactive in that era. Which, um, they were a notorious skate scene, I mean, skate team and kind of crew, Yeah, you know, in the, in the late 70s. I think Lacey's mother was the one that was running it, Alan Lacey's mother. 
Oh, the truth is um, in Barclos, yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I think, um, so So the story goes, and I'll, I'll keep it short, because it is actually in the book too. Yeah. Um, we don't want to take too much away, but I thought it would be a fun little... Matt, Matt Rawdon was the owner of Moose BMX. Which was um, a BMX shop. It was a BMX shop in Riverside, and it was the one that Jeff would come and work at part-time, and, and Ted Emma was also part of that crew. Yeah. Uh, Jeff was also someone that hung out with a lot of the skaters too, so he, you know, it wasn't a kind of them and us thing to that degree, but Colton certainly weren't... The skate park, Rancho Mediterranea, they weren't really motivated to let bike riders in, like a lot of the parks weren't. They didn't yeah. need to, I guess, at that point. Yeah, because um, they were still riding high. Yeah, but Matt Rawdon, who is a really, really cool guy, who I'm in touch with quite regularly, who owned Moves BMX, he was the guy, really, that was the catalyst to get Jeff some permission to ride. And that kind of accumulated into a point where there was a skate competition there. Um, I want to say late, late 80 maybe early 81, I need to, I need to probably uh, clarify that, but, um, and it was Matt really that kind of got them convinced to allow bikes to come into that contest. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a kind of vertical contest, it was more a kind of slalom style thing at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, I believe that Bob Harrow was a judge at that contest, um, and it was one of the first that we know of. I think it predates the King of the Skate Park, yeah. like Lakewood anyway. Um, so yeah, and, and again, a, li- a little bit of an incubator in the middle of nowhere for a scene that's that's kind of erupting. Um, so there'll be more about Jeff Watson in this book, and I think yeah. I've got some more photography coming uh, uh, of him actually at the pipeline of all places, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, he's definitely definitely a, an icon, and you know, someone who for years I feel like was lost in the mix. You know, yeah, I mean, he he was, you know, the mention of his name would always make people kind of you know very respectful and excited but really there wasn't too much more known and and Jeff's no longer with us unfortunately but um on the last project researching you know deciding to go down that rabbit hole and find out more about it bumping into people speaking to his family finding Matt Rawdon Ted Emma those guys um it was worth the effort I think yeah well and you look at I mean his Action Now cover you know Action Now was like uh (coughs) You know, it was a magazine that covered BMX and pretty much whatever you want to term an action sports back then, like yeah. late 70s, early 80s. Did it come out in the 70s or was it just yeah, I mean, Essentially, Action Now was Skateboarder magazine. And the editorial team at Skateboarder, Skateboarder was part of Surfer Publications, which was a, obviously a bigger publishing group. And Skateboarder, as, you know, as all things tend to do, skateboarding, vertical skateboarding was on the rocks. You know, yeah. It was... It was dropping in popularity for all these different reasons that we know about. Um, and actually, the Action Now team were given an opportunity to, to sort of reinvent it. So they created a new idea called Action Now. So from Skateboarder, it became it became Skateboarder's Action Now. Yeah. And then it just became Action Now like two months later. So they transitioned it. Um, and the team there was James Casimus. And James had been the star photographer at uh, skateboarder while he was still in high school so yeah speaks to his talent. and he shot some iconic skate photos yeah absolutely I mean there's, there's nothing there's no higher credit you can give James Casimus he's a great guy and a great photographer um, and Dean Bradley was there so Dean had done some work with uh, BMX Action Magazine so Dean was, was shooting and he was doing editorial D. David Morin was the editor and, and uh, what these guys had decided to do was to diversify the content of the magazine to be taking in all these other things that were emerging. So at the time, I think there was some GPV going on. 
uh, gravity powered vehicles. Yep. There was uh, obviously mountain biking was coming through. Uh, surfing was you know clearly there. Um, there was sandboarding. I think they might have covered a bit of snow. I and think they, they did also, early snow. They did motocross. They did motocross. You're right. Yeah. And they also brought you know some sort of music, some punk rock music into it. So they recognised this lifestyle opportunity, and they and they were turning the magazine in that direction. Um, and what happened around about that time was Bob Harrow would had uh, left BMX Action Magazine, mm-hmm. and he'd become friendly, I think, with some of the guys at Action now, particularly Dean. And um, he kind of came into their field of view. And I give Action now a lot of credit. And deservedly so, and those guys, because I think what they did is they took um, everything they'd learned in skateboarding, everything they'd learned about skateboarding kids, and what motivated them, and what language they spoke, um, and the lifestyle they led, and they recognized that Bob Harrow was doing something like that on a bike, so between them all, I guess, they worked it out, and they and they figured out how to, to kind of crystallize what freestyle was. Yeah, I mean, they kind of... I mean, I feel I mean, that stuff that was going on in Southern California from probably, I mean, that whole lifestyle of how kids lived in Southern California from like the late 60s till then, um, it kind of was finally, they were wrangling it all up and trying to capture it. Because, I mean, people, Southern California people have always been riding motocross, you know, they were skating, they were surfing, they were riding their bikes to the skate spot, to the surf spot then jumping their bikes at the same time, you know, and then, you know, out of those you're getting mountain biking and snowboarding and, you know, the punk scene was going crazy at the time, you know, and it, it yeah. kind of just pulled all that into one bubble. It, it was really like a, a melting pot of all these different cultures. Um, and these things, I think, were really, really kind of centric to Southern California. And yeah. they still are. You yes, know, yes. The action sport lifestyle here is one that's embraced, isn't it? Um I mean, all right, we're in Oregon saying this, but... Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's it's a, you know, that's kind of a face of Southern California. Yeah. You know, it's a good weather all year round, you can go play, you know? Exactly, and you can indulge all these different things. And, of course, kids, as you said, kids always have done that. Yeah. And at a certain point, I think the skateboarding blueprint, without giving it too much credit, was, was the thing that, you know, when you took BMX racing and you took um, skateboarding and you put this thing in the middle of them, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the child of the two parents. You know, BMX racing kind of enabled the equipment side of it, the hardware side of it. Um, a BMX bike was capable of doing more than just racing on. And, of course, I guess skateboarding culture, to some degree, inspired you yeah. know, like the tricks and the riding and the early skate park experimentation we see. So um, I definitely want to get to grips a little bit more with, with that piece of it. Yeah, and then you can always, I mean, but then you can always go back before that too and be, you know, when people just first started skating pools and they'd ride their bike there and ride their bike in the pool, you know, it's, it, it all came, it's like a two-headed dragon that came from, you know, same body, it it, it just, it all came from the same spot and it's just, you know, grown apart and grown together and intertwined, you know, through the years. It's motivations, it's the right people involved, it's yeah. circumstances, you know, the drought that happened in Southern California. In the Opened 70s. These, you know, far, far-reaching drainage ditches to ride, and kids didn't want to skate there, so they rode their bikes. Yeah. And then there's a bike on the scene, you know, and that's when that when that kind of connection started to get made, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, the ditches during that drought, you know, all the pools are empty, but all the ditches are empty, 
and the ditches were too nasty to probably ride with clay wheels and stuff back then. Exactly. So you'd be riding your bike in it, and then you'd go to ride your bike to a pool later and yeah. skate the pool. Oh, I could take my bike in here and mess around, you know? And it's like... Yeah. There's even stories about the um, when L.A. Airport expanded its uh, runway. I, I'm not sure when that was, but... Um, but certainly, apparently, they, they bought up a bunch of real estate that was in the way. <laughs> yeah. And all of those houses had swimming pools. So there was this huge, huge, expansive neighborhood that was completely empty, had nobody in it, and, and tons of empty swimming pools. So um, It turned into like an early skate park. <laughs> there you go. And I think, I think there were a bunch of skateboarders and, and maybe some bike riders that went and you know made use of that. So there's all these little subplots. That, yeah, that come together, and I, I get interested in that stuff. Um, so I tend to sort of, you know, to indulge. Well, that it's just bit. funny how little click like that, like you know, the LA airport can have such a big influence. Yeah. On a different type of you know subculture or something. Well, because guess what? If one kid is introduced to skating or riding a bike at that point, and that kid goes on to do something different, maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's a kind of Ron Wilson type guy, or, or maybe you know. A, a, Tony Hawk or a Gator Rogowski or a Kevin Starr or somebody that, that goes there and gets that connection. You know, not saying it was those guys, but it only takes one pivotal person, as we know, in, the, in our world to yeah. lead it and to lead it somewhere new. Um, and to pull more people into the mix. Exactly. You know, it can take one... The way one person looks at BMX and the way he goes about it and uh, goes at it, uh, he can you know, influence and bring in hundreds to thousands more. I mean, look at look at Hoffman. How many people do you think ride because of Hoffman? Oh, I mean, you couldn't quantify it. Could you? Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So, and that's just one person. Yeah. And, you know, then whoever inspired him is the catalyst for that, and yeah. it can go on and on and on. Down, even, so. I think it's even happening now. I mean, I watched some of the um, the Vans Pro Cup. Yeah, the Vans Pro Cup. There's a bunch of kids there that are leaders. You know, they're, they're, you know Dennis Anderson's a phenomenal rider. Larry Edgar, you know, the high air, the high air oh, contest yeah. every year is just outrageous. So it's still happening now, I think. Yeah. Um, so with the what, what, so with you adding stuff to the book and and you know it's it's a second edition, but in a way, it's almost like a. I don't know, like a one point five. It seems like you're adding a whole another half a book. Is it going to be laid out the same? How, how, are you are you just like tacking stuff on at the end, or how are you kind of going about it? Well, ba- basically, what's happening is I I'm retooling it completely. Um, I'm not changing it for the sake of changing it. There's there's a ton of content that doesn't need to, any changes to it. What I am going to do in every chapter is introduce a little bit of an intro. <laughs> yeah, introduce an intro. Um, so give some backstory. Um, I was very keen to make sure the first one was this kind of pure oral history piece where you know it doesn't need a bunch of documentary style narrative in it yeah um, so I did that and you know you turn the first page of every chapter and you're hearing from a writer or, or a pivotal person um, I do think that I need to introduce some of that now so I've looked at it and I'll just write some some brief passages just to make sure people have a bit more kind of context on what's happening um, certainly a lot of that does come out in the chapters but I think it's a good thing, you know, we, while we can, we have some space to do it, is to add a little intro just to give people a backstory, what's happening, why, yeah. why, why they're about to read what they're about to read. Um, so there's going to be intros in every chapter, so that's nine chapters with extra content. But another thing too, there'll be extra 
content in some of those chapters. So targeted content. I'm very interested. Some more photos and. Yeah, I mean imagery is always you know is is uh, exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I like I said I always try and find stuff that hasn't been used before, hasn't been seen, and is good quality. Um, but I'm interested in a couple of things like you know I want to get into that. Um, I get into it with Ron Wilkerson about the, that trifecta weekend where he put together, you know, the first King of Dirt. Uh, oh, at Mission Hills. Yeah, the Mission Hills King. She get into the Dirt Bros about that one too. Yeah, they, yeah, there might be some crossover there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Vic might want to have something to say. And, um, yeah, it was a uh, what was that ninety ninety one? Yeah, it was. There was a La Jolla meet the street. There was a King of Dirt at Mission Hills, and, and then he had a vert contest. That is house. Lemon Grove house. And yeah. it kind of turned into, because I've talked to Eben about it, you know, it was kind of when BMX was dead and there wasn't enough real pros there. So it kind of turned into a vert jam. Yeah. You know? It was very indicative of what was going on at the time. Because it really felt like it was like Eben, Jay Miron, yeah. Blyther. The Hoffman was riding. Wilkerson and Hoffman. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ron is an ambitious guy, as we know. And, yeah, and he and he did some incredible stuff. He he, you know, moved the needle as we like to say. Um, and so, and knowing Ron, he likes to take everything to the limit, which is his kind of personality. So I'm just quite interested in you know his his memories of that, and you know, I guess it's no major mystery why he, what his motivation was, because Ron is that kind of guy. But I'd like to know more from him about that. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into a bit more of the, uh, the two hip king of uh, series. And we'll also be bringing Dino De Luca into that chapter. So Dino was a, a, a phenomenal rider, a GT rider, um, primarily a vert rider. Yeah, I would say, though, towards the later years, I mean, I wouldn't say he was a street rider, but I'd almost say he was an early, like, mini, you know, he rode, I think he rode mini ramp, and he rode pretty yeah. good at all those early street contests, you know? Yeah, I think he, I mean, he was a good bike rider, wasn't he? So he, he could certainly... Uh, Adapt to anything, I think. Yeah. Um, personally, I, I love looking at pictures of you know the rubber band airs and and just how you know stylish he was. Um, and Dino's kind of one of those riders that, as much as he was in the spotlight and kind of a pretty big pro there, you know, from like eighty eight to ninety one, you know, yeah. you don't. I mean, just like a lot of dudes, that you don't really know much about him. You don't, and, and, you know, one thing we do know about him, and I'm sure he would admit to this too, is that he was a little bit, you know, a bit controversial at times, and, and uh, you know, certainly an extreme personality, so yeah, I'm very keen to, to hear yeah, more I've about I've heard him. he's pushed people's buttons and stuff. Yeah, totally. And I'd like to, you know, I've heard from the people that have had their buttons pushed, and I'm interested to hear from the button pusher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because there's always two sides of the story. And... Of course, and, and you know what, none of it, none of it is, uh, none of it's, criminal behavior it's just dynamics and 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 you know these things these personalities and these attitudes you know good bad or indifferent are, are just all part of the kind of rich tapestry of the scene yeah and and they're needed aren't they so so we're going to hear from dino um and a lot of the other chapters will have additional narrative and additional images and again the reason for that actually is i've, I've taken the the grip off the page count a little bit so this book will be the original book was 244 pages. Yeah. This book is going to be 310. So okay. So it's going to be really big. Yeah. Um, another thing that we're doing, which is something that I'm personally quite keen on, is is telling the industry story again. Um, 
when I think about the components of the scene, you know, we know about the writers and we love that story. We know about the media, the journalists and the photographers and how they told the story. Yeah, the storytellers. Yeah. Um, but the industry had a role too. Yeah, it know. supplied the money and the plane tickets and, and, the, exactly. and the style. Exactly. It, it was a critical part of it. And, you know, again, as a kid, my, my role in this is really, I was a kid on 7,000 miles away in a, in a little suburban neighborhood in England. My, my, um, my interpretation of it all was through magazines and, and occasionally seeing the show and writing with my, with my buddies and stuff. So often for us, it was like, you know, God, how do I get a better bike? How do I get that new pair of handlebars? How do I learn that trick in the magazine? So the industry side of it, I think, for people that aren't in the industry, is quite important and quite interesting. So what I've tried to do on this particular book is look at another set of brands. Um, what are these new brand stories we can tell? So with the, with the old book, you, the brands we, you touched on and did history was... Uh, so we had Vans, um, Oak, Oakley, Oakley, yeah, GT, Haro, SE, and Skyway. Okay, and which are all iconic brands. All comp- very iconic and um, very supportive. Yeah. the early scene. I mean, we wouldn't have got to the middle of the decade without those brands, I don't think, Yeah. in terms of what they brought to it. Um, but also, they all predated, you know, trick riding or freestyle. I mean, Oakley, you know, was a, was been around since the late 70s. Yeah. Bands have been around since the mid-60s, we know that. Haro, you know, is regarded largely as a freestyle brand, but... Yeah, kind of the fir- it was the first freestyle brand. But certainly Bob was proactive in BMX racing before yeah. there was a freestyler to indulge. Uh, GT2, you know, very strong in BMX racing. Um, so when I when I looked at this, I thought, okay, who who are the brands that, you know, we can zero in on, that are relevant because this isn't you know this isn't open to anybody. You have to be part of a an exclusive little industry community, get I guess to be in. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about energy drink companies or anything like that. Um, so I started looking at the back end of the decade, and um, we have Vision. So we'll be talking about Vision's impact on. Which you couldn't, I mean, from like 87 on, you couldn't open a BMX magazine without seeing somebody decked out with vision, everything. Exactly. And it's an, a really interesting story because, you know, vision was obviously a skateboard company originally. And they'd learned that, you know, they'd learned a lot to get where they got to. Kind and of they'd like, become massive. And actually they came into the scene, I think, and underpinned it where some of the bike industry companies were beginning to, to struggle. Because, as we know, you know, the industry kind of went into choppy, difficult times at the end of the 80s. Yeah. So, you know, it was brands like Vision, and another brand we'll be talking about is Airwalk. Yeah. Um, which have, has a fantastic story. And actually, I was only talking to Mark Lumen this morning about Airwalk, and he, he uh, blew my mind with, with what he knew and what he remembers and how closely connected to it he was. And you look at both those teams, like the Vision Streetwear team and the Airwalk team, and... That is like the coolest dudes of the coolest dudes at that time wrote for them. It, it was the rock star teams, isn't it? I mean, yeah. look at Airwalk with, you know, Brian Blyther was, was, you know... Pete Augustin. Craig Campbell. Um, Hoffman. Yeah, all of those guys. You, you, name, you name a great writer of that era, they probably were on Airwalk. Yeah. And the same with Vision, too. I mean, Vision, you know, Eddie Roman, although I think Eddie was also on Airwalk at some point. Yeah, I think there were there were crossover guys, but like yeah. Fuzzy Hall. Yeah, Fuzzy Um Wilkerson was, was Vision. Yeah, I mean, it's like they yeah, just had everybody. So again, you know, they came in at a time and you know didn't didn't typically didn't did their toe in the water. 
They jumped in both feet. I mean, Vision did full BMX videos. Exactly. You know, so. they, they They came along as, and became, I guess, you look at companies like Swatch as well. Yeah. These companies came into BMX or Freestyle and really put their foot down as the first kind of extreme sports companies to venture into it, I think. Yeah. I mean, you could probably argue that with some of the other brands, but, you know, so my, my plan was to look at brands in the later end of the decade. The only uh, exceptions I've made to that are the other two companies we're going to talk about are Odyssey. Now, yeah. Odyssey, you know, as we know, a, a leading brand in modern yeah, They've been around since 85. They came along in 85. There's a good story there. Uh, there's some great leads on their vine to the gyro, Brian Skura, um, a history of innovation. Yeah, you know, Odyssey is a is a brand that you know can can stand proudly in modern BMX. Yeah, and it's like innovative. any company, they've had their bumps in the roads through the years yeah. and and everything. But I mean, yeah, definitely, you know, Odyssey was just a a, a parts company, and the gyro kind of uh, pushed them to the forefront. You know, exactly. And you know, they became a, a supporter of the of the of the scene. I mean, you know, you don't have to look at too many videos before you see an Odyssey banner. Oh yeah. Um, so and they sponsored riders. And out of all those early parts companies, you know, if you're comparing it to ACS, Tioga, I mean, so many of them pulled away or died or, yeah. you know, they're still at the, at the forefront. You know, Odyssey have done well, haven't they? I mean, look at them now. You know, yeah. they're still a leading innovative company. Um, so we'll be talking about them and talking to some of the people that were connected to them, including Brian. Um, and also Redline, and this is quite an interesting one because I guess it's the exception to the rule I've just put down, which is we were looking for companies that were prevalent in the second half of the decade. But I was so kind of caught up in the Redline story myself, talking to RL on the first project. Again, another example of, as I said earlier, someone that I was talking to about, you know, the kind of corner of their of their story. Yeah. So I spoke to RL recently and I said, listen, you know, I'd love to tell the Redline story. You, you know, you were there, you were the guy. Um, and of course, Todd Anderson wrote Redline. Um, I have a connection to Lynn. Um, yeah. And some of the early races too, guys like David Clinton, he's going to be uh, helping us to, to kind of peg the story together at the back end. Um, so we're going to talk about Redline too. And I think largely that's going to be through RL. So that's quite exciting. Cause, yeah. You know, he's, he's not somebody that's, uh, been particularly visible in the scene. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a number of years. I don't think. I mean, for the most part, you haven't seen anything of RL since Bully crashed. Yeah, you know, like ninety one. So he's he's confident um, in working with us, and and of course, I think sort of managed to develop a, 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 an honest relationship with him on the first book. Uh, certainly, really enjoyed talking to him and listened to the audio from that interview the other day. And uh, remembered how many cool things I remember. You know, I learned that day. So we're going to hear more from RL, which is exciting too. So there is this huge new group of contributors coming in. So I guess the headlines for anyone that's interested in in supporting the project and, and pre-ordering the book is it's going to be a lot bigger. Yeah. It's going to be three hundred and ten pages, um, and there's going to be a bunch of new great new content in it. There's going to be another thirty. So what do we got for content? We've got. Dirt Bros chapter, NorCal yeah. slash Curb Dogs chapter. Yeah. Uh, new yeah. industries chapters. New brand chapters, um, updates to all chapters, introductions to all chapters, and also. And uh, little stories here and there, like more with Jeff Watson, kind of. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some other stuff 
evolution of a lot of chapters, yeah. yeah. And again, I've, what I've tried to do, the reason the book is big is because I've tried to just allow space this time to be a little bit more indulgent, but not overindulgent. Yeah. And again, living by the rule that, you know, I don't just decide if it's an essential chapter. I talk to other people. So I talk to guys like, you know, Mark Lumen and Andy, and, and I, sp- I speak to other writers and people that were there, and I say, listen, this is what I'm thinking. Um, what do you think? Is, is this something that belongs in the book? So I tend to take a lot of advice like that as well, just so it's not me, you know, sitting in my little office in Oregon, uh, yeah. making it all up. I don't get to choose the history. I just like to be the guy that tells it. Yeah. So I think it'll be an authentic piece of history again and, and a step on with a, a bunch of new stuff that people are interested in. Um, so we went kind of over all the stuff that's going into it, you know, the, the new stuff. Um, you know, we, we did this with the last one. I know, like, the last one, you could you could just buy the book outright. Um, and yeah. then there's, like, packages and certain awesome little things. You showed me some stuff last night. Yeah. I, I was like... I think I, I was way too excited about ceramic pins last <laughs> night. But uh, yeah, you, you want to give kind of a breakdown of like what are because you can go. Um, by the time this goes up, it'll be available it'll be for pre pre order. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what are kind of the 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 packages you can get? Well, well, firstly, the the um, the, the idea behind the packages. Um, there's no science really. It, it's about helping to drive a little bit of seed funding into the project. Yeah. Because there's such an enormous amount of work involved, and also there's a lot of travel. And you know, uh, unfortunately, I'm not wealthy enough to to independently, uh, you know, create projects like this. So um, what I do is I speak to the brands that I want to cover, and often they they very quickly understand that you know um, we're going to produce some content and. I'm very realistic about what I need from them. Rarely I ask for money. What I normally do is I say to them, you know, let, let's produce something that excites our, our audience. So it's usually an item. So it's, you know, in the case of Vans, it was a pair of shoes that were designed with magazine art in the yeah. project. Um, and we create some T-shirts and stuff. And what happens is, you know, people get way more excited about that than they do about just reading about the chapter. So it, the two things kind of link together. Um, so in this case, I've done the same thing again. I've pulled together products from companies that are supporting the project. Um, I've asked them to produce something of quality and that is, um, you know, centric to the to the project. So, you know, it has some kind of design element to it that links it to the project as opposed yeah. to just being a different color. Um, so we have something coming from Vision, from Airwalk. Uh, we don't have shoes on this project, but we have some really cool soft goods coming in um there's uh something coming from odyssey we haven't quite decided on that yet but i'm quite excited about what the two options are and we'll we'll know more about that coming up um we have a bunch of really cool little items like some as you said earlier ceramic pins no what were they was it a two hip pin two hip and, and pipeline um and there'll also be some patches too some two hip and pipeline patches again we get excited about that stuff don't we yeah um, I'm a nerd. So I we put I put some packages together again, and I have made them what I believe to be pretty amazing value for money. I'm never about trying to make these things hugely profitable. I'm yeah. more about solving a problem, which is you know if there's a bunch of guys out there that are excited by 
getting some you know some authentic cool items that we've made so another thing that'll be in there is a is like a print of the cover um which will have brian blythe on it so um you know it's really just an opportunity i think a fun way of getting people to to engage and the guys that want it great come in and get it and you know you'll get a bunch of stuff for a very very good value and like i said once once you guys are hearing this uh you'll be able to go to the website um, I'm sure there's going to be a link or whatever. Yeah, we're going to do a couple of hundred packages again. Um, there, and I can tell you now there'll be three, potentially four T-shirts in there. There'll be ceramic pins. There'll be some reissues of the Two Hip Society magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be a little supplement that comes with the book that is uh, rammed full of uh, old AFA and, and Two Hip uh, adverts. Yep. Um there will be an art print, like I said. Um, God, there's a bunch of other things. I can't even remember, to be honest. I just know, looking at it, I think we looked at it last night, there'll obviously be a copy of the book. Yeah. And there'll be a wrap on those 200 books, too. That okay. will be exclusive to, to the package. So, again, you know, for the people that want it, it's going to be there. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, people understand, I think, that, that it's a good mechanism to, to get a piece yeah. of history put together and, and out into the world, so... Um, is there anything we're missing to touch on, do you think? I don't think so, no. I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? We've, uh, we certainly covered, um, you know, I, stuff I think is important. Yeah, I was just excited to kind of just touch back on this. Like, you know, I said at the beginning of the pod, like, I'm always excited for any little piece of BMX history to come out and, and have something that you can put in your hands, you know, and I, I feel as in BMX, we need more of that, you know, you know, it'd be nice if somebody if more people did this, stepped in and did some stories from the 90s, you know, or just photographers that were out yeah. there did books of their own. and, and well, the, the thing that I would say is I'm, I'm confident that there's a, ton of diff, there's a ton of assets out there that, you know, should be seen. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, I'm trying to do that. Um, and there's a bunch of stories out there that should be told because I think, going back to what we said earlier, you know, this, you might, we might be talking about a period of 10 years here, but... You know, that's a busy ten years. Yeah, and it and only, a lot of it only gets busier as BMX goes on. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, yeah. yeah. Like as as it goes on, it, it just gets busier and busier. You know. Well, um, hey, let's plug the website just in case somebody's just listening to this in the car and yeah. they don't have it on their computer. What what's what's the website? So I'm just I'm just retooling it this week. It'll be it'll be ready by the time this comes out. So it's uh, W, the number two W freestyle history dot com okay there should be a first edition page a second edition page so you can read all about the first project um see some cool pictures and then and if somebody's really antsy are there a few books left from the first edition there's some first editions left too yeah okay yeah again i I mean i'm not highly motivated to sell everything out yeah kind of feel a bit protective of some of those books yeah (laughs) wanted to keep some um but definitely uh, there's some still available yeah and if people want to buy both then great but yeah you can pre-order the book um at that website www.freestylehistory.com we tend to we intend to drop the book in uh, and the packages in December oh that's coming um, up so yeah not too far out and also we're planning an event actually in fact oh, we're planning yeah, yeah event, actually we talked about it yeah. so yeah hopefully uh, I don't want we do should yeah th- th- hopefully we'll have something fun going on so yeah something fun and unique yeah so and cool yeah alright well 
I guess that's it. Th- thank you for talking to me again. I'm, I'm, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me, man. I yeah. Until next time, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for taking the time to s- sit down and listen to today's show. Uh, if you have time, head over to Snakebite BMX or the Dig BMX YouTubes. Uh, give them a follow. Watch some videos. There's so much good good stuff on there. Um, it'll get you super inspired to go ride. Um, yeah, and until next time, have a great summer, guys.